Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed to be in dialogue with, with Silvia Nakamuli. She is a cookery teacher and Italian J- Jewish food specialist living in London, England. We are here today to discuss her new book, Jewish Flavors of Italy, a family cookbook published in London by Green Bean Books 2023. Sylvia, I am unbelievably blessed to be in dialogue with you today. Hello, thank you, Ari. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the chef and cook and writer you would become as an adult? Yes, so um, I am from Rome. I was born and grew up in Rome, in Italy. And uh, um, I then moved to Israel, where I did my undergraduate in Israel uh, uh, in political science. And then I moved to London 25 years ago, so quite quite some time. But my formative years in, in Italy were really growing up in an Italian Jewish family, which is a bit of a double whammy as, <laughs> uh, but as food is concerned, it's probably a good a good um, end result. So um, surrounded by food and people and it, Italian and particularly Roman Jewish tradition, um, um, that, that, that was in, in a nutshell, that's, that's the way I, I, I grew up. What inspires you to write this book? What message? What message do you hope to convey to readers in this cookbook? Yes, so it's a it's a two layered answer. I I think one is a sense of responsibility by having been perhaps the first in hundreds of years in my family that left Italy um, because we could trace my family. Rome is the oldest Jewish community in the Western world, and the Jews have been there for up to. 2000 years, if not longer. Um, and I feel a sense of responsibility about keeping those traditions alive. So food is one of the uh, things that we keep and we bring wherever we go and that survives perhaps um, the longest. So uh, part of uh, of my of my aim is to really keep those traditions alive and, and, and bring a message of uh, an, an inspiring uh, um, young or old alike to to cook and uh, to explore uh, flavors which are yes Italian but they do have a history they do have a a cultural baggage behind and to try to understand the source and the what inspires the the recipes. What are the primary themes in your book what quote-unquote story does your cookbook tell? Um, I think the family, so it's a family cookbook, that's quite important. And the reason that I bring up the family is because for me, uh, it's really important to bring uh, food to life. So um, I think it's it's not just what we eat and how we nourish our body, but why we decide to eat what we eat. So um, um, I think that's a, that's a really central central point. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Uh, I would love them to be inspired and finish to listen to this and open the book and start cooking. <laughs> um, or or to learn something uh, saying, oh, I didn't know this about Italian Jews. Uh, or I didn't know that they were Italian Jews. Or I didn't know that what they, the Italian Jews eat rice for Pesach. And uh, um, But they're still not Sephardi, so how can it be? So uh, I've loved people to just question things or discover things or or just cook. I hope so too. <laughs> Toward the end of the book, you present the poem La Sparshandata by Giudaico Romanescu. Who was he? Can you describe the meaning of this poem? Okay, so Giudaico Romanescu, it is not a name. Giudaico Romanescu means simply Roman Jewish. So yes. it is a, is a, it is a, um, a poem which is uh, the, the author seems unknown. So they have, I, I found it in uh, a, the book by um, a Toa. Um, and uh, um, 
Ariel Toaf, and and uh, it's uh, it's really uh, basically it's like it's uh, it's this book in one poem. It's like the story of uh, Italian Jewish cuisine into a poem. It's like a list of over I think uh, there are more than two hundred dishes that Roman Jews and not only because it, it also mentions names of dishes that uh, go in the Livorno, in Venice, and and uh, and other um, cities in Italy. What they used to uh, eat, and the, the poem is written at the end of the uh, 19th century or the beginning of the 20th century, and uh, it's the it's basically um, uh, una ode. How do you say ode in English? Um, it's like a poem, uh, like a, a, a song to a, a home cook, a woman, and said, okay, show me what you can do. And she said, oh, I am Italian Jewish and I can cook uh, such a varieties of dishes. And then she just goes into a, like a kosher rule. She starts by saying, I keep kosher rules, are really important. And then she just goes on and starts giving this list of over 200 dishes that she makes. Uh, so somehow it's a, it's a testimony. It's like a, a legacy of, of what Roman Jews or Italian Jews ate over 100 years ago. Wow. How has Italy's Libyan Jewish community impacted contemporary Italian Jewish cuisine? Can you comment on the mutual influence of Libyan and Italian cuisines on one another? Yes, I think that's a really fascinating question because uh, um, Italian cooking, like any other cooking, is is really created by the influence within and from outside. So the Italian cuisine is, uh, Italian Jewish cuisine, it's Italian in flavors because Jews have been there for so long, but has been inspired by the local cuisine in order to conform and then to conform to kosher rules um, 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 and created new new dishes. And then they had like Jews coming from many different countries throughout the centuries. And the Libyan Jews uh, is the latest waves of immigrant immigrants that came after 1967 when they really escaped basically almost overnight. And uh, being an old Italian colony, they um, Italy was one of the main places where I ended up going. Still others went to Israel and the States. Um, and they brought with them, as Jews do, and not only Jews, their own cooking traditions and uh, their own ingredients. And uh, and they really kept it very, very preciously. And they, they kept on cooking those uh, wonderful dishes such as the chaimi or the merduma or mafrum uh, uh, or the sefra. There's, there's this like a large varieties of dishes. And uh, and when they they came to Rome, they introduced them to the slowly through the Italian th- tradition. So today, if you go to uh, the restaurants in the in the Jewish uh, area of Rome, you do find a lot of restaurants that uh, do offer a few. Um, Libyan, in particular Tripolitanian from Tripoli uh, dishes and they really enriched the Italian tradition so whenever I used to go as a as a child or a teenager to a friend's house and and the, the mother used to be the, uh, from Tripoli, the food was mostly from Tripoli so it was not uh, that much kind of Roman Jewish as, as I was uh, um, used to but then of course being in Italy they also uh, incorporated and adopted a lot of uh, the wonderful ingredients that you find in Italy and they kind of then as happens is a marriage of cultures and uh, and the two kind of uh, uh, live alongside nowadays. In light of what you just alluded to, mm-hmm. how has the kosher and Jewish restaurant scene in Italy changed in recent decades? What are the most noteworthy kosher restaurants in Rome, Milan, <laughs> Venice, and elsewhere in Italy? What cuisines are represented? What are the present culinary trends? Yes. So it's a became the kosher scenes has really um, flourished in the last uh, decade or two. Um, and when I grew up, uh, there was really almost nothing. Uh, if you would go to the, the, the Jewish area where there used to be once the ghetto, in what is called the piazza 
piazza ebraica um, in the portico d'Ottavia there was no 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 maybe one or two uh, kosher restaurants and now because it became very much of a central um spot like a hot spot for tourists and and there's a lot of very interesting jewish uh, um tourism and not necessarily jewish then uh, a, a lot of restaurants really start uh, um being created and also the another things that changed it as well was the in rome in particular um, was the Jewish school because there's one Jewish school that didn't used to be in the Jewish ghetto and since it, they moved it in the main ghetto then the whole area has been really revived and a lot of restaurants start opening up so people come out of school and go and eat something local that can be a that one of the it's a great little fast food I am not a fast food person at all but like a fast food the Roman Jewish way it's like a, um, there's this one little place called Fonzies, where they make, uh, so the Rome, they have uh, wonderful ways of uh, um, a, a curing beef uh, or cutting, having specific kind of cut of, of, of beef. So you have carne secca or uh, um, uh, which is like dried uh, cured meat. And that's based on the idea that I mentioned earlier that you're inspired by the local cuisine, which in Italy would be like cold cuts of pork, for example, and make it kosher. And uh, so in this case, you would use the beef and you cure it and you can make sausages, you can make uh, um, dried, uh, um, dried cuts. And uh, in the fast food, you have these sandwiches, which is which is uh, basari, is a meaty, and you have this wonderful Roman Jewish cuts of meat in the or a concha, which is uh, um, a marinated fried courgette, so which just in the area. So even even the fast food has got a bit of a soul of its of, it, of its own. Um, um, then in I know I, I haven't I know there are kosher restaurants in Florence and in uh, um, a. Uh, Venice. I haven't. I haven't tried to. To be totally honest, I don't eat much in in a kosher restaurant, as they say that the best food is mama's food. So whenever I, I am in Rome, I do. I do tend to to eat more at my parents. Um, but I I do take the kind of the odd slice of pizza or or or, or uh, um, a piece of pizza ebraica from Buccione. Uh, the 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 kosher bakery in Rome and um, a, it, which is really tasty. In what ways is your approach to cooking similar to or different from your mother's and grandmother's? How is your cooking style similar to or different from your sisters and sister-in-laws? Uh, so it's 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 all one family. So you can see a family way of cooking and. Um, the Nakamulis, uh, that's my last name, we've always quite known to cook quite well. So everyone in my family, both my mother and my father and and uh, my aunt and uncle and grandmother, they, everyone kind of cooks quite well and everyone is always very happy to come to come over for <laughs> for a for a meal. Um, uh, my mom, she's uh, uh, she's I think she's the best cook, I must I must admit. And she's really been an inspiration on everything that I've learned. I learned it through her. And I learned it by inertia, by just absorbing it really. She 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 works and she's super busy. She never said, Come darling, I teach you how to do that. She just kind of gets on with it. So you just need to watch and and um, eat, and then eventually you just by leaving it. So I learned really by uh, absorbing it, so I I think by be having been away for Italy for longer than actually by now, I actually lived in Italy. My my cooking, as my father in particular says, has been contaminated by a lot of uh, different other ingredients. So maybe maybe my flavor is a little bit richer. I guess I I I dare to experiment a bit. Although in the book, I really tried my best to keep the, the recipe as really they are and how as they would do in Italy. Um, my sister's cooking also, it's uh, it's very similar, it's very good. She explores a little bit more also. In, um, my, my grandmothers, they had very different style of cooking, however. Uh, one was very abundant in quantities and in type of creativity and the other one was very minimalistic and doing 
always kind of more similar, the same dishes over and over and quantities smaller. So um, I think that's quite a, an interesting uh, um, a kind of background. But but I I I, I both they both had to give and I took whatever <laughs> whatever they wanted to share culinary wise. What was a typical Friday night Shabbat dinner like in your home growing up? What are Shabbat dinners like in your home today as an adult with your own family? What were your favorite conversation topics at a Shabbat dinner table when you were younger? And what are they today with your own guests? Um, lovely questions. Um, so Friday night dinners, when I was quite young, we used to be at my nonna Emma's and nonna Sandra's home. And uh, they are the grandparents that I mentioned earlier, the second, the latter one. So the, the menu was always the same and the quantities were more kind of a, a smaller, um, which was a frittata di spaghetti, a spaghetti frittata. Um, they keep they kept Shabbat, so everything had to be ready before and uh, um, and served either warm or room temperature. I'm not sure they had a, pl- a hot plate then. Um, a... And there was like a, a stew of some type, and uh, and but oh, and a dessert, a slice of cake. But it was just enough for everyone. And then we moved to my parents uh, when my grandparents became a little bit more elderly. And then my parents are very kind of more abundant. We always have at least maybe ten different types of vegetables um, to 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 share at the table, and we're very seasonal on what we eat. So my parents would never have a fixed menu for for Friday night. And uh, it would ever be whatever they find at the market and uh, whatever it makes um, a sense on, 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 on that night. But it would, quantities would be abundant on that. And today uh, I do Friday nights in London and uh, um, we, we have, I change menus every night, every, every Friday night. So I don't... I don't have a, I don't have a fixed menu. I've, I kind of very much follow my parents' path of, of seasonality, and um, and uh, and as far as discussion goes, uh, in Italy it's all talking one on top of each other, on the other. So there's no one conversation. Probably there's like four conversation going on at the same time, and everyone listening at each other, and no one listening at anyone, and. Uh, um, and uh, here in London, there's less of us. There's four of us, and my sister-in-law who comes, uh, Anne, my my, um, my husband's sister. And uh, so there's less of us. And uh, uh, we talk. I have my daughters are eleven, so perhaps the conversation they are more kind of children friendly and. But they sometimes even a bit existential. They kind of start asking a lot of existential questions. So we try to go with with those as well as the everyday life. But uh, uh, we very much enjoyed the Friday nights dinner every week. How did it, How did the Spanish Inquisition impact Italian Jewish food? How did the influx of Jewish refugees from Spain impact Italian Jewish cooking? How did the need to disguise or replace ingredients impact Italian Jewish cuisine? Um, okay, so these these two parts of these questions, the first and the second one. Um, the first part of uh, the the Spanish Inquisition. So Italy had a lot of influx of uh, immigrants throughout the centuries, and uh, Italy is not. Italy as we know it today until only about 140 years ago, before it was like a, um, 150 years ago, and before it was like a conglomerate of independent states. So the south of Italy, Sicily, Calabria, Puglia, and Sardinia uh, were part of the Spanish empire. So with the Spanish, the beginning of the Spanish Inquisition, because it kind of went through really um, for some times, the, uh, the Jews in 1492, and then later in 1541, um, it, they were expelled from Sicily, where there were more than 40,000 Jews living in, in, in Sicily at the time. So that's just perhaps a larger number than, not perhaps, it is definitely a larger number of the all of Jews living in the whole of Italy today. Um, and uh, a, and then later on, they moved also from the area around Naples and Puglia, and they brought with them their own cooking traditions and their own ingredients, a little bit like what we're talking about, the 
the Limbia Jews, although the cooking perhaps was not as, as radically different as the one of, of Libya, was still the flavors quite Italian. So they introduced new ingredients like uh, aubergines, um, in the, which in Sicily still today is very widely eaten and uh, a combination of pine nuts and raisins. I was, um, I was in Palermo uh, and I remember walking the market there and, and seeing this uh, little sachet of pine nuts and raisins that they just sell because people put it so much into the cooking. And that's very much of a uh, Spanish or Sephardi influence in, 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 the, um, in the cooking. But Sicily has been always a, 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 a melting pot of cultures and of influences from all over the Mediterranean. Perhaps I would call it almost the capital really of, of all the Mediterranean trade throughout the centuries. And when the Jews moved moved and settled in the center and north of Italy, they brought those ingredients with them and they introduced them and kept on cooking them despite the rest of most of the Italian population not really eating them. And um, and the aubergine in particular is interesting because it's been defined as the vile food of the Jews by um, Pellegrino Artusi, who, who is one of the kind of uh, founders of Italian Italian cuisine and wrote a really important book uh, 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 written more than a more than a hundred years ago so it's it's interesting to see how how the Jews basically had um, an interest or a culture of or a tradition to uh, use and cook the specific ingredients uh, independently of the address of the Italy. So you could see that with aubergines, you can see that with pumpkin, you can see that with fennel, um, that of course now they're like widely spread and cooked and eaten and enjoyed by the rest of the Italian population. But uh, uh, the Jews were amongst the first to, to use them. Um, to go to the second part of your question, I am not sure that they, they try to, to uh, hide. I can't remember exactly how... What was the, the second part of the question? But I, I, I don't think that How did the Inquisition, they... yeah, like how did the Inquisition mm. impact how Jews in Italy cooked, what they cooked? Was it different in Italy than elsewhere in the Catholic world? Yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I'm not so sure um, if, if it was a matter of Inquisition, because of the Inquisition in any, in, 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 in any shape. I mean, the Inquisition just force somehow the, the movement of the Jews and with the force movement then kind of ingredients traveled with them and were introduced uh, but is uh, the one that were left the Jews that were left in Sicily either converted or, or were killed and the one that converted on, they didn't need to keep any traditions alive because the, there was nothing really that much different that they were doing I think compared to um, to, to, to the rest of the of the local population how did Italian Jewish cuisine change and evolve as a result of the discovery of the new world and the colonization of the new world. How did Italian Jewish cookery adapt to new ingredients from the Americas to Jewish migration to and from the Americas and to the economic consequences of colonialism in the Americas? Um, okay, so uh, the um, the the, the, the new ingredients uh, uh, that came uh, with the discovery of Americans are uh, the wonderful tomatoes, potatoes, corn, peppers, um, uh, and uh, just to mention a few. And, and they came and they really revolutionized totally. If you think of Italian cooking now and think to think of Italian cooking or Mediterranean cooking without tomatoes, it's almost, uh, it's almost uh, uh, hard to think. But those were really new new ingredients and, uh, um, and the cocoa and the coffee that came. Like it's, and they, because Jews... Uh, uh, um, especially in the um, in the north by that time, and like they could then, uh, with the Spanish Inquisition, with the conversos, they were a lot into trade. They were amongst the first one to um, to use and to get the uh, um, the in, in tomatoes in that case, or the the cocoa, the um, and they and they really had uh, a very early. Um, tradition of, of incorporating them in their cooking, like in Livorno, for example, which is the only Italian city that never had um, a ghetto in Italy. 
is there was a Porto Franco. They uh, actually invited all the conversos, uh, in particular uh, all the Jews who came and 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 uh, um, um, join really the um, the economic growth because it was really a jewel of, of of town of economic growth at the time, and they brought with them all those kind of new ingredients so it, it's just not meaning the Jews didn't discover necessarily anything as such they were just among the first one who happened to bring them and to make them part of their cooking so in Livorno we have the uh, Triglie alla Mosaica or la Livornese which is uh, um, also my book which is with tomato sauce uh, which is really delicious um, but those that's the way that slowly then they spread across all the other regions and and um, any religious denomination. How much do you know about your family's history in previous generations? Can you speak about your family's history during the years 1939 to 1945? Yes. So, so it's funny because when you ask a family history, I thought, is that starting of thinking over 500 years ago, 800 years ago? By all means. Because I know. <laughs> No, I don't. I, we now because from my mother's side, I think we looked into it. We could look up to I don't know how many more than 10, 13, 16th generation in Italy. So it goes quite a long way. And my father's side, it uh, was my grandfather was from Venice, um, and then Akamuli go there um, for probably at least a hundred couple couple of hundred years, if not before. But talking about more recent history. Um, uh, I incorporated one thing that I decided to include in the book, besides the recipe, uh, and behind, and besides the history of Italian Jewish cuisine, and um, it's it's uh, is the it's the family side of what how my parents and how my family really survived during the Second World War, because it's very much part of of my identity and who I am today and what, uh, um, why I do what I do, even connected to food, because I think it, it, it's, it, it really reflects, um, I, I don't know, the way that my, my parents gave us a Jewish, a Jewish identity and that's very much connected, I think, to the world. So they were both uh, hidden, hidden children. Um, one, my father, he was uh, uh, um, saved and he was uh, hiding in a, in a boarding school, in a convent, really. Um, and my mother, she was uh, born in 41, so she was very small, but she was still hidden for nine months into the house of the ex-housekeeper of my great-grandmother, whose name was Sylvia, by the way. Um, and uh, um, and their story, I think, is quite, is quite incredible, and they were very lucky to, to be to be uh, alive, really, and to, and to go through it. And not all my family survived. Some of their, my grandparents' siblings in both sides uh, perished, and one even went and came back from Auschwitz and wrote a memoir. So I, I thought as a kind of as a as an Italian Jew, a sense as, as a part of that sense of responsibility of keeping uh, tradition and memory alive. Um, uh, I share I share their stories in the book. Can you tell us about your Nona Bianca and your Nona Bino? Yes, Can Nona you... Bino. Yes, so Nona Bianca and my daughters. So my I got two daughters, I got twin daughters, and they one is called Bianca after my late grandmother, and the other one is Thea after my husband's late grandmother. Um, and uh, Nona Bianca was uh, my mom, my father's mother, and Nona Bino was. Uh, um, her husband and he was from Venice, so he was Bino. Actually, his name is Abramo, but he was called Bino Nakamulli, and uh, he came actually to Rome in the 1930s. Um, and the rest of his family that, that was in um, Venice, they were all uh, they all got deported. Um, eh, so she, my grandma, they 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 were really wonderful, really kind of sunny disposition. Um, used to have Thursday lunches at home for all the family, for us and for our cousins. And uh, there were about 15 of us as an average at the table. And my Donna Bianca, my, my grandfather, he passed when I was about 10. But Nonna Bianca, she she was there until my late 30s. So I, I enjoyed her company, really. 
for quite some times and uh, uh, she was just a pure inspiration she was she cooked very well she always had wise words she always uh, um uh, was supportive of whatever we were we were doing but always always t- trying to teach us a lesson of life and <laughs> in between can you tell us about your nono sandro and your nona emma Yes, well done. <laughs> so, so Nana Sandra and Emma were my mom's uh, parents. Um, very different in, in character, but still very, very important, very central in our upbringing. My, my nonna Emma, she was a, a primary teacher at school, so she helped me almost every day after school doing my homework. She was quite strict, but uh, she was good. And, uh, um, uh, and Nono Sandro, he was wonderful, a very elegant man, always with a hat, and they they used to call him Signor Buonasera, uh, um, when he was always hello and uh, bowing, and, and uh, uh, really very always so happy to see us, and um, uh, really like a, a simple, wonderful grandfather as well uh so i've been very lucky to have uh, to have the four of them actually can you tell us about some of the new trends in italian jewish cooking in the past 30 years in the past decades how have european integration globalization and the proliferation of the internet impacted Italian Jewish cuisine. Yes. Um, yes, I think it's as you, you put it very well there. It's really it's really about globalization of foods um, and and accept, being able to access other uh, recipes or the culture. Like perhaps let's uh, let's take Hanukkah who just passed. So the sufganiot. The sufganiot is really Israelis, which Israel is a relatively young country to start with, as if, if you see it within the context of a 2000 over 2000 years old uh, community. So, um, but the, the Sufganiot uh, uh, are quite similar, for example, to the Italian Bomboloni, but I never really grew up with Hanukkah and Sufganiot. So it's something that it's been newly added to, to the Italian uh, Jewish repertoire, which we very welcome because they're very tasty. And we and we realized that we do something very similar with the bomboloni, uh, just different feeling. And then we we, we kind of, um, now you find them for all the time for Hanukkah. Um, or the Orecchidiaman, uh, in Roman Jewish tradition, they're like a, a a strip of fried pastry, so very simple. And uh, well, actually, there's a uh, diamantation, which are like what the pocket of a man, which are triangle and field. And that's it's not often found. I didn't grow up again with them, which again they're delicious. So we adopt them, and now we make them. Um, or even the challah, the basic um, of uh, kind of the, the really the, one of the pillars of uh, Jewish cuisine. Um, the braiding of the challah is really an Ashkenazi um, a tradition to do it, uh, which in Italy, the, or not in Italy, all of Italy, but Rome in particular, there's like a, bra- a round, plain bread. Uh, and that's what we used to make um, to make the blessing and as a challah. Uh, so the new tradition of having the bread, which is not a new tradition to bread the bread, of course, but in, in Italy to have it as a, as, as a Saturday or Friday night uh, um, bread, there's relatively new things that uh, I didn't grow up with. But uh, being all wonderful ideas, we, we just take whatever it, it, it's great and we adapt them and add them to the repertoire. Can you tell us about the kosher bakery Boccione? Why is it notable? So Bocione, it's really an institution in Rome. It's in the um, in the heart of the uh, what is called the piazza, which is the uh, the main square of in the Jewish quarter. It's a, what is called really a hole in a wall. It's like a little corner shop where you can't. Uh, there's no name at the top. It is really tiny inside. Um, it's run by a family of women, uh, really there's only women running it, and they are not particularly friendly, but they know, and they kind of really almost play uh, with, with it. But uh, they, their baking is just wonderful, and it's uh, they make all the traditional 
Roman Jewish um, um, bakes, such as the pizza ebraica, which is a fruit cake so with nuts and candied fruit, the um, torta di ricotta e visciole, ricotta and sour cherries tart, um, or a ricotta and chocolate, or ginetti, or uh, some uh, cinnamon and almonds biscotti. And, they, and that's just the only ones who make them like that. There are other bakeries now that they, they, they also sell here and there, but they are, let's say, the heart, the the heart of of the the Roman Jewish ghetto as as bakeries is concerned. How is Italian Jewish cuisine different in different regions and locales within Italy? How is Rome's Jewish community's cooking similar to or different from Milan's, Livorno's, Sicily's, Venice's, Florence's, and others? Okay, so the the idea behind is that the Jews arrived at different times in the different regions in Italy, and they brought with them their own cooking traditions and their own uh, sometimes ingredients. I mentioned earlier with the aubergines and uh, um, from from the south, and the funnily enough, uh, the the fact that. Um, ghettos were in Italy for over 300 years, um, they enhanced or they allowed the conservation of traditions and uh, and way of cooking. Um, somehow they stopped time for that. It, they, they locked it. And um, and as a result, you can you can see that there's like a Roman Jewish cuisine, a Venetian Jewish cuisine, a Livornese Jewish cuisine, and so on. And the, the, for example, the, you have the different ways of immigration from the north, Venice, for example. Um, the first Jews arrived in Venice were Ashkenazi Jews, but then the ghettos, there were like three different kind of ghettos for the different types of uh, Jews that arrived throughout the centuries. So you had the Ashkenazi Jews, you have the Ponentini Jews, you have the uh, Italian Jews and Sephardi Jews, and they all brought with them their own cooking traditions and their own ingredients, and it became a wonderful melting pot. Um, so you may have Ashkenazi influence more in Venice or in Piedmont from the Jews that came from France, uh, of course, and all the goose recipe that I, for example, and the use of goose that I um, mentioned in the book, uh, or they are really from the north because that's a, a tradition that Central European Jews had, but there was no really goose in the south of Italy. So in Rome, you wouldn't find any goose recipe as such. Um, you would use more kind of uh, beef and uh, and uh, local uh, ingredients as the artichokes, you know, the carciofi alla giudia is perhaps the emblem of Italian Jewish cuisine. It's a wonderful fried uh, artichokes that opens up like a flan flowers and it's crispy and it's sweet and savory at the same time. And it's really delicious. Um, um, so every region has its own things to, to, to offer as such and based on the influence of the Jews that arrived at different times. You alluded to goose meat. Um, yes. And goose meat is referred to often in your book. For example, you refer to the kosher goose producer, Yolanda de Cola, and you describe <laughs> the attempt by Anna Campos of the Venetian Jewish community to revive the preparation of goose, goose cool, yeah. cold cuts. Um, can you tell us about the history of goose consumption among Italian mm-hmm. Jews? Um, can you comment on why goose consumption is less common in recent times. Can you describe the recipes you present that can incorporate goose? Mm-hmm. Yes, with pleasure. So um, goose is a really fascinating ingredient because it's, uh, although I didn't really grow up in it, in the north of Italy has been really a central part in Piedmont in particular, in Venice, in Modena, in, in Bologna. So in the north part of the Apennine, um, it's often uh, um, defined as 
the pork of the Jews, because of the cold cuts of meat that I mentioned before. For example, I talked about Rome and using the cold cuts of meat using beef, that the Jews in the north used the cold cuts of goose. So goose has a long history of being used amongst Ashkenazi Jews for really centuries. People used to um, breed and the uh, geese uh, in their courtyard and uh, basements and uh, um, uh, in Venice and they were uh, in, in, the, in the main area where the, where the market was it was like full of um, um, of, uh, of, of geese being being bred there and uh, so it was really a primary a primary source of uh, uh, of meat as uh, as uh, you would have for the perhaps from the Catholic they would eat pork as easily the, the, the Jews in the north they would eat the goose but eventually goose generally, was replaced by the by the use of uh, turkey through the centuries, uh, which uh, was uh, um, cheaper. There was more meat to it; was a bit more tender. So eventually, it kind of uh, faded away. And now, and nowadays, and then eventually, chicken took even more over it. Uh, so it just, I think, was a. A more of a natural death, let's say, of uh, of its use rather than uh, um, uh, being stopped for for specific reasons. So it's just uh, one of those ways that of how kind of uh, uh, cooking evolves and ingredients change within a specific culture. Um, um, but there's uh, some um, mentions that I do on the on, on the book uh, um, where where I go more into details of, of, of all the, the possible ways of which goose meat uh, was used for making prosciutti or, or um, salsicce or the goose fat uh, in, uh, eaten and made put inside of fogazza and the pizza in, in every possible way. And today you can find it but more rarely because really there's one uh, a, a producer of it uh, which amongst other uh, non kosher meat also does the kosher the kosher one and it's uh, and it's sold mostly for for like special occasions or as in cold cuts but um it's kind of lost that old traditions of using it um both the meat and its fat uh for for general cooking as as it used to be a long time ago how do italian jews prepare haroset can you describe your recipe so italian jews there's no one recipe. Like I think probably haroset of all the, the recipes, probably one of those. Yes. Uh, there's more recipe of haroset as there are of Jews, I think. But uh, um, so it really changes. Um, the one that I, even in my family, we we you know we do a, a seder night where they we do the all the festivals with my mother's side of the family, which are more. Um, religious and traditional and they come over to my mom's and there's about usually between 30 to 40 people for for Saturday night at ours and even between us we have at least three different type of haroset uh, so um, the one that I propose in the book is the one that eventually I I kind of made my my own based on uh, what my um, my cousin Manuela always does and then my sister-in-law Loredana makes some, uh, and and uh, the idea is to really have a rich combination of nuts, of flavors of nuts and and dried fruits. And we do always add a little bit of red wine or orange juice, uh, being seasoned. Then the blood 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 orange juice uh, tends to kind of always go in there as well. Um, but I I put uh, um, a, both hazelnuts and almonds and uh, um, a, and orange juice and and red wine. I have no sugar because it's all very natural natural uh, um, a, a sugar and sweetness that come from the fruit. Um, dates going there, so you can you can actually be really as creative as 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 you like. So the idea is to just for me is to share my recipe, and then for people to pick and choose it to reproduce it as such or 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 uh, or replace any of the ingredients. What are the most popular dishes prepared by Italian Jews on the occasion of Tu Bishvat and Shabbat Beshalach? 
Yes. So there's one recipe that I propose in the book, uh, which is a fascinating and somehow it links with the with the goose that we mentioned earlier, uh, which is the Ruota del Faraone, uh, which is uh, um, a, uh, it's 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 a very interesting uh, dish that comes from a combination of Venice and Ferrara and Bologna. Um, it's a bit of a macabre uh, story, really, but uh, the idea of, of like to be shvat and the Shabbat Beshelach tells the story of when the Jews come out from uh, Egypt and they uh, cross the Red Sea. So this dish, it's a, um, it's a, it's a pasta bake, it's a fettuccine bake, uh, where uh, you would cook the, the, the fettuccine and then inside there, there used to be like a, a goose meatballs or, or, or little uh, sausages um, in pieces. And then you have the peanuts and the raisins and they kind of uh, represent the, the, the passes like the waves uh, of the of the sea that is uh, closing. And then there's like uh, the um, the the meats and the 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 panas and the raisins are like on the horses and the and the <laughs> Egyptian soldiers being uh, and trapped and devoured by the waters and uh, and as we do eat Jews we just eventually make a dish out of it and and uh, and um, it's a really interesting and it's a really lovely and really tasty dish actually which I look forward to making in a in a few weeks actually. Can you tell us about bomboloni? What is the significance of this Hanukkah dish? How is this recipe different from sufganiyot, which are perhaps more widely known elsewhere outside of Italy. Yes, so that's what I I, I kind of touched on it uh, um, uh, earlier. They are they are quite similar. I mean, the idea is that it's it's a similar this similar idea, just that we the bomboloni in Italy they're made every day, and you can have break people have it for breakfast. If you stop for a bar, you have a cappuccino cornetto, cappuccino bombolone, or as a teenager you would go like a midnight to have it and uh, with your friends and uh, and uh, have a um, a bomboloni con la crema. But it's 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 like a, it is like a um, in a donut, like a, a fried donut with, with filling inside. So it's a quite uh, on a similar way of souvenir. Which recipes in this book would you most recommend to a complete beginner in the kitchen? Which recipe or recipes would you most recommend to someone <laughs> coming home from a very bad day? Which recipe <laughs> or recipes would you most recommend for a date night? Okay. So for a... Uh... An easy recipe. It's the one that always comes in my mind, which is the pollo ezechiele, which is a chicken dish with uh, tomato, red wine, uh, olives, and uh, and fresh herbs. It's so easy to make. You really just put everything together and let it cook, and the flavors are so intense and so delicious. So if you eat meat, then I would definitely try the pollo ezechiele. Um, eh, or the gozzamodi, which are the meatballs in celery and tomato sauce, really lovely. Um, as a fish dish, a very easy and delicious one is the, the pesce la Livornese, the Livornese uh, fish with tomato and chili that I mentioned earlier. Um, really, really nice and quite uh, straightforward to make. Um, if you are coming back, home and you just want a quick dish actually I think the fish probably it's a really good one to do um of my pastas I love pastas um I gave four recipes of tomato sauce so um there's a garlic base an onion base an onion and and, and garlic and a bolognese sauce so maybe just I would say do a large stack of bolognese sauce and just have it in the freezer and then come back home in the frost and make a bowl of pasta bolognese. I think that always works pretty well. Um, or a pesto. I always have pesto. For, uh, there is a recipe for fresh pesto, basil pesto. And um, and I also that this freezes very well. So have it have it ready in the freezer and then um, make a pasta out of it. Um, for a date night... Maybe a risotto is something nice to cook in the kitchen together and just uh, like uh, sip some wine while you, you show off your bit of skills of making a risotto. That would be, 
will be a nice one to to make like a cappuccini mushroom risotto. Um, maybe that that could uh, that could be. I think it's better to cook together rather than serve a ready meal filled food. Um, at least some of it you can have the rest and done. Um, or a bad day. A bad day. You need something sweet. I think. <laughs> um, if for a day, maybe the cake that I that I bake the most is the torta, torta di nonna bianca, which is a lemon sponge. It's like a, a comfort food for desserts for me. It's a, I can have it in the morning dipped in milk or as a tea thing. So I always I would always opt for that. Or um, there's a lovely chocolate and almond um, torta caprese or uh, hazelnut and chocolate, which is also very good. So I would go for one of those, I think. Oh, melanzana parmigiana, but it does take some time, but always, always good. <laughs> Sorry, go on. Based on your personal experience preparing this cookbook, what advice would you give to a young aspiring chef? What wisdom would you share with someone thinking about writing a cookbook but does not know where to start? Uh-huh. So it's just perseverance and, and passion. I think for me, it's been really fundamental. Uh, believing in and believing in your project. Meaning if you want to do it, it just is going to be hard at times. This My book had different life cycles. Sometimes I went for it um, and then and sometimes I stopped it and I thought maybe never to finish it and then uh, it, but I always wanted to do it I always I knew that I, I I would have really regret not to do it so I and it was important for me to to bring a message across and I think there's I think people would have found the recipe handy and uh, the story interesting so uh, believe in your project I think uh, you if you, my, my main module is like find find the passion and, and and follow it through as we bring our dialogue today to a close can you tell us about what you are working on now that this book is behind you where is your intention yes. going <laughs> so it's funny it's like this is I, this I just I just gave birth to this book, so my my aim now is to really bring it to life and let it grow a little bit. <laughs> um, it's uh, I always find that it's uh, it's like a question, you know, when uh, if you meet if you meet someone or a boyfriend, so when are you gonna get married? Or when you get married, it's like when are you gonna have a first child? So there's always it's like I'm actually at the moment I'm really just enjoying the book coming to life because um, my main uh, work in occupancy is really to cook every day. I cook for cookery, demo, cookery demonstrations I do. I work a lot with synagogues. Uh, um, I do food deliveries and do catering. So that's my day-to-day thing. So I, I maybe I started this morning, actually, I was talking to a colleague and I was talking about if I do a second cookery book, how title it. So maybe there may be some other ideas in my in my mind, but uh, I am really mostly going back in the kitchen and cooking a lot because in the last year I've been writing a lot. So I will uh, I I I I'm really much enjoying the the cooking part of it and and spreading the word by doing cookery demonstration and and um and and letting the the book have its own natural growth. So um yeah. That's where I am at the moment. I wish you the very best. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. To our listeners, I am your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Sylvia Nakamuli. She is a cookery teacher and Italian Jewish food specialist living in London, England. Today, we've been discussing her new book, Jewish Flavors of Italy, a family cookbook published in London by Green Beans Books 2023. Thank you. Thank you so much.